Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey listeners, if you find value in this podcast and would like to support this project, please consider signing up on Patreon, where you can support the show on a monthly basis in exchange for some extra content and behind-the-scenes updates. Just check out the link in the description or go to patreon.com forward slash podcast. I'd love to see you there. And now, on with the show, here's what's coming up next on the Liverboard Sailing Podcast. But even when you're 100 yards offshore, you're not calling the ambulance and people aren't going to be there in five to seven minutes. It takes a while for Coast Guard to spin up. It takes a while for a Coast Guard cutter to get to you. So you could be right offshore and you might be stuck with a patient for a prolonged amount of time. You know, really realizing how remote sailing actually is, is something that I think a lot of people don't necessarily appreciate. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Annika. On the Liveaboard Sailing Podcast, I chat with awesome people who live, work, and travel on their sailboats. My guests share inspiring stories and real-life advice about the lifestyle so that you and I can be better prepared for our sailing adventures. This episode is one that will make you think and ask yourself things like, am I prepared? Would I know how to act in this situation? Would I know how to save a life? That's right, we are talking first aid and emergency preparedness at sea with the founder of Maritime Medical Guides, John Tausig. He is the founder of the nonprofit and happens to have years of Liverpool experience himself. Maritime Medical Guides provides a range of adventure-based, maritime-specific medical training courses to help provide the sailing community with the knowledge base and hands-on experience and skills to lead more prepared and safer adventures. 
I asked John to come on the podcast to give some practical tips on first aid kits, to discover the most common injuries and accidents sailors face, and what to do about them. We also talk about the importance of a communication strategy and how do we actually get help if we need it. Here is my chat with John. So John, you are the founder and the executive director of Backcountry Medical Guides. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, your liveaboard experience, and of course, the organization itself? Uh, yeah, certainly. I I grew up sailing. My, my father is a, a real devout sailor. He's the kind that sailed mostly small boats and raced a lot and was very meticulous uh, sail trim and in every other aspect of sailing, just a sailor's sailor, uh, never flicked on the engine. And even to some of his young family's dismay or annoyance, we, you know, want to get home. And he would just wait for that little puff to take us to the next, you know, point closer to the harbor. So, uh, you know, grew up essentially being tortured by someone who is a purist. And uh, fortunately, that ingrained sailing into my into my body. Uh, I moved up to Seattle, and this is all in high school, and, and really stopped sailing all through college. Went to school in Montana State and got really into mountain sports. And uh, sometime out in college, I started having dreams of sailing and being back on the water. So I, I moved to Santa Cruz, California after after school, and and uh, bought a bought a boat off of Craigslist for two thousand bucks. I had no money, and I postdated checks for five hundred dollars <laughs> in accordance with my in accordance with my um, my pay stubs, and bought my first boat, and actually lived aboard that boat in Santa Cruz. Uh, for about five years. It was a 27-foot Balboa, a 1980 Balboa, with a little swing keel that didn't actually swing. It was frozen in, in place, which was up, which is actually not the position <laughs> you would want it in. Um, at this time, I had been working as an EMT or as a paramedic on different ambulance crews with the National Park Service as a ranger paramedic. And I had about a 25 to 30-mile commute to Monterey around Monterey Bay from Santa Cruz to Monterey to work on the ambulance. And I got so into my little boat that sailed poorly, but I was happy with it that I sold my car and I started commuting by boat the 25 miles to my different ambulance duties. And that became quite a journey. I mean, it's like a 45 minute drive. So suddenly it's a four and a half, five hour sail plus a 10-mile bike ride, and it became this like journey and expedition to, to get to work. And I, I did it for a year through hell and high water, and it was probably the most amazing experience ever. It just took the mundane part out of life, which was all the you know commuting and work, and it turned it into this really interesting and um, impactful commute that was full of whales and, and um, other animals and fast downwind sailing and, and you know, trying to get home and getting blown back to Monterey. And it, it really kind of changed the total trajectory of my life. My coworkers were horrified. 
um, at the time. <laughs> they were teasing me a lot about, you know, blowing in on the boat to come to a meeting or something like that. But uh, for me, it, it really kind of solidified my love uh, for, for boating and being on kind of a small underperforming boat in, in tackling this waterway. It taught me a lot about sailing and all of it was done single handed, uh, not necessarily by choice, but who wants to go to work with me? <laughs> that that led on and, and trickled into getting a bigger boat. I, I bought an Alawala 38. Um, my wife and I uh, went cruising. We, we set out of Santa Cruz, went to Panama and, and spent five months on the West Coast and went through the, the canal a few times and into the Caribbean, Colombia, Cuba, and now up here in Bellingham. We brought the boat back over to the Northwest, uh, spent time going up to Alaska a few different times and just been enjoying every ounce of it. Through the process, I started a, a nonprofit to teach wilderness medicine and maritime medicine. Now we've kind of diversified the, the two name brands as Backcountry Medical Guides and Maritime Medical Guides. And yeah, incorporated in, in 2016 as a 501c3 nonprofit and uh, just continued to try to improve that and improve the experience of, of sailors and their medical skills. And it's been a hell of a journey. We have a ton of plans and yeah, just excited about everything. What a story. Yeah, that's uh, quite the adventure to get to even that point. So clearly, you know, you're very familiar with with the sailing adventures and living on the water and having expeditions to go to work and all that. <laughs> it was pretty contrived. So, yeah, you know, I, I think it talks about the strength of character there a little bit. <laughs> I Yeah, or stubbornness or something. But uh, yeah, I, I guess I lived aboard for, for eight years. We, we have our offices living aboard. At, so we work on the boat, um, our, our small group, and continue to live on the boat in different aspects and for different durations of time when we're doing any travels and have, again, a lot of plans to hop back aboard for at least a few years uh, here in the near future. That's fantastic. Well, you are the right guy for the job and, and to talk about wilderness first aid and specifically in a marine environment. And I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into sort of the first aid aspect as it relates to life on board, whether it's as a liveaboard or whether it's, you know, doing extended cruising or coastal cruising or what have you. So if we can start with the basics, what would you say are some of the, say, unique challenges that marine environments yield when it comes to first aid and, and accidents in general? That's a good question. I mean, there's so many unique challenges. The one thing that that I constantly reflect on is that there's really no worse emergency room in the world that is, you know, small, that could potentially be dark, could be wet, that is pitching, yawing, rolling around in the ocean with, you know, potentially non-experienced healthcare providers and you're a long way away from a hospital. It, it's really unique in in that way where you have to be self-reliant and you don't want to have emergencies. You want to prevent emergencies. And so, you know, pre-trip planning and prevention is everything. We get that question all the time in class and, you know, in a wilderness class, people show up and they're, they're just full of questions. You can tell that they've been stewing about, you know, what do they do if they fall off a cliff, break their femur, 
get bit by a rattlesnake and no one knows that they're there. What do they do? And, you know, the, unfortunately, my answer is like, you know, you're, you're probably going to die uh, at that point because you didn't take the the right preparation steps and prevent those types of, of problems. And, and the same goes in the in the marine classes. Uh, most people are locked into this fear of accidentally jibing, having a head injury aboard, being in the middle of the Pacific or the Atlantic. And, you know, what do you do then? And the options are are not good. Um, the options are to help the patient to treat any life threats and to coordinate evacuation. And, you know, ideally it would have been prevented through, you know, the act of using preventers or sail training or, uh, you know, crew communication or w- whatever it is. So that is unique. You just don't want to be in that position in the marine environment. So remoteness, even, you know, it's obvious when you're in the middle of, of an ocean or on a long voyage, but even when you're a hundred yards offshore, you, you're not calling the ambulance and, you know, people aren't going to be there in five to seven minutes. It takes a while for Coast Guard to spin up. It takes a while for a Coast Guard cutter to get to you. So you could be right offshore and you might be stuck with a patient for a long a, prolonged amount of time. And so, you know, really realizing how remote sailing actually is, is something that I think a lot of people don't necessarily appreciate. But then, you know, if you do have an emergency aboard, another unique challenge is that the scene could potentially be pretty unsafe. You know, there's a lot of different varietals of how many crew and crew capabilities are on board. But uh, safety of the crew, safety of the vessel, safety in relation to proximity to reefs and navigational hazards, all of that is on top of needing to help a victim or a patient. And so there, there's just a lot of challenges and unique challenges to the marine environment. Uh, first aid in a front country setting, you know, right here where I am right now, could be as simple as keeping the person calm keeping the person warm, uh, treating any life threats and waiting for an ambulance. But offshore, you've got a lot of things to manage in a short amount of time. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and I guess the first rule is not to get into any kind of accidents or um, have those injuries in the first place. But what are the common injuries or accidents that you, you've seen um, sailors get into? There's some good data on this. They've the Wilderness Medical Society has been looking into this, and uh, through some of the research by Andrew Nathanson and others, have looked at some of the injury prevalence, especially in terms of ocean racing. What they found was statistically, uh, the boat bite is the most common injury. And the boat bite, most people are familiar with, it's kind of like the soft tissue injury. It's where you smack your shin on the companionway hatch or bump into the table and it um, it leaves a bruise and maybe a small abrasion, sometimes a small laceration. And boats are constantly biting people, especially when you're on a, a new boat. I've noticed, you know, there's a learning curve every time someone comes on a boat because all the spots that are going to bite you eventually will. So that <laughs> that is the statistically most common thing. And what's lucky about that is it's most common is to be really, really minor. 
Now, once you stretch out a voyage over a longer period of time, the prevalence of nausea, vomiting, diarrhea tends to be uh, the most prevalent. And so you've got these traumatic injuries, which most people, you know, that's what they associate with accidents and medicine at sea is trauma, splinting and bleeding and suturing and all these skills that, you know, they're thinking about that maybe they don't know as much about. But really over extended amounts of time, you start to see more of the medical problems arise like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. And a lot of that actually boils back to hand hygiene, cooking prep, and and disinfection, personal hygiene. It, most people want to blame it on the water. Most people want to blame it on the food. Oh, the food wasn't bad. But a lot of the time, it actually boils back to personal hygiene, which on a, a passage or a voyage, particularly a rough one, uh, tends to break down. Most people head out with good intentions of staying active, staying healthy, stretching, exercising, cleaning, brushing their teeth. And then, you know, they're in short period seas for a few days. and it's hard enough just to eat. So these sort of processes of cleanliness can can break down and that can be more prevalent. That's really interesting because I would have thought that it's something, I don't know, burns or, you know, something dramatic, like you said. But And it's interesting because with something like nausea and then vomiting and diarrhea, it doesn't immediately feel that serious. But I suppose if that goes on for days you know, then then it, it very much has the potential to get very serious. And especially if you're somewhere far away and you're getting dehydrated and staying that way. So that is an interesting thing. So why don't we cover that aspect right here? How do we treat someone who is maybe severely dehydrated as a result of having vomited for the last three days or something? You know, the, the treatment for nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, it really depends on what the cause of the nausea, vomiting, diarrhea is. And it could be an infectious process that might uh, require uh, fluids and nourishment and time to run its course, or it could benefit from a course of antibiotics. Uh, But it really depends on what the source of it is. And a good way to determine that is through a really good patient assessment and really taking a historical look at it. So the treatment can be different, but they all share sort of similar hallmarks in that you you do have to hydrate and you do have to nourish the patient. Nourishment for someone that's throwing up is difficult, and it's mostly in the form of, you know, bland sort of purees and foods that aren't irritating for your stomach. In terms of hydration, the WHO has a uh, rehydration solution formula, and that is in a lot of first aid books, that sort of formula that you can create, it's basically salt, sugar, and water, and in various concentrations. But sort of the way I would look at it would be like a dilute uh, Gatorade solution or electrolyte solution as being like the optimal rehydration solution. And you also want to consider if this is something infectious and is this something that could potentially get the rest of the crew sick. People that get sick on board, you hope that they get better. And it's also a challenge for people to get better on, again, on a boat in the middle of the ocean that's that's got a lot of movement 
in those cases, if someone is just, I would say, sort of circling the drain, you can't keep fluids down, you can't uh, nourish them. Sometimes you can tell that they're going into a type of shock by looking at their vital signs and looking at trends over time and really kind of knowing when to fold them. If you're trying everything that you can do at your level of first aid or medical care and things are not improving, you know, really understanding um, the signs and symptoms of someone that's getting worse and realizing your limitations so that you can call for an evacuation early. Uh, that, that would be another thing to consider. Yeah, so certainly understanding and knowing what the treatment uh, may be or should be, should it get any worse, but also understanding the source, making sure that it's not something that is maybe contagious that other people can get. And of course, prevention is always the key. <laughs> Try not to get into that situation in the first place. So if it's, you know, something like hand hygiene while cooking, make sure you still stick to your land standards, <laughs> even if you're in, a, in terrible conditions in a boat. <laughs> Right. And I mean, this is where I think the advent of telemedicine is, is going to prove to be a, a really vital tool. Right now, telemedicine is essentially in its infancy when it comes to the average person. Um, a lot of people have started to integrate telemedicine with primary care, at least here in the States, uh, particularly through the pandemic. It really accelerated uh, that, that sort of division of medicine. And I would expect it to continue to develop into these more remote conditions and be something that's standard aboard. And really, telemedicine is going to be best served by understanding the patient assessment. And kind of like what you said, you really have to understand what's going on. To do that, there's a list of questions in a patient assessment, and the list is, is pretty generic. It doesn't grow and expand beyond, um, I would say, probably 15 really important questions to ask. And, you know, that and asking those questions and getting the answers to those and providing those to a telemedicine source or to a remote clinic or to the Coast Guard via single sideband or um, some way to a healthcare provider to help you extrapolate what that information means. A lot of people want to diagnose things, and it can be really, really challenging, particularly with nausea, vom vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain. It can be hard to diagnose those things in the field because there's just so many things from, you know, pancreatitis to Crohn's disease to bowel obstructions and uh, gastroenteritis. It's a tricky, tricky thing to diagnose, but if you can ask the right questions and summon the the correct resources to help you, then you might have a, a really good idea of what it could be, or at least a, a short list. I've heard you say that something that people should have uh, in preparation for emergencies is a communication strategy. So is this what you just uh, explained? Is that part of that, having that communication strategy to outside potentially to telemedicine? Or what do you mean about Having a communication strategy as almost as part of your first aid toolkit. You know, communications are the foundation of accessing the healthcare system. And what is almost impossible to do is to treat people that are really, really sick on your own in the middle of nowhere with limited to no medical training. 
And so that really shouldn't be the goal. I think accessing the emergency system, whether that's via EPIRB or SPOT, personal locator beacons, uh, single sideband, SAT phones, whatever it is, that is going to start the process of a rescue. And it doesn't always require a rescue. It doesn't always require a helicopter and um, a rescue diver in, in some dramatic, you know, high seas rescue. But it's a communication standard where you become point on a map where people are following you, people are advocating for your safety and health. And without it, you're practicing medicine without any help. And really, the wrong place to be is in the middle of the ocean by yourself with a patient without really an idea of, of what to do. So establishing communications is just a, a big key. Yeah, exactly. So the, that goes into having the equipment that you can communicate with to the outside world, as well as knowing what to say and then you're having assessed the situation and being able to relay that information to to somebody who is out there. Without them, then you you don't have much. You're hoping that people get better. And, you know, if people get worse, then it can be too late. And so establishing that communication line early is a, is a huge benefit because now agencies can coordinate and they can already talk about where you are, your proximity. You can start trending towards help, uh, towards care, and things can improve. And you can call back and say, hey, you know what? This is getting better. I think we can manage this. And you might receive the blessing from uh, the powers that be that that sounds like a good plan or they might have some more questions from you. But you can always call and you can always cancel, but you can't have not called and expect a rescue to just assume that they know that something bad's happening to you. So yeah, that's the, the point there. Yeah, that makes sense. And I chatted with somebody from the uh, Royal Canadian Marine Search and Rescue who said the same thing. It's always a good idea to give us a call, even if you later have to you know, call back and say, like, never mind, we figured it out. But at least they were aware and on standby if the situation gets worse. So that makes sense uh, in this situation as well. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So first aid kits are obviously pretty standard uh, piece of equipment to have on a boat. But as a, a bit of a research for this podcast, I did a quick Google search. And that revealed that there's actually quite a lot of them available, ranging from, you know, 30 bucks to 300 and 700 and then probably even more. So do you have any yeah. advice on how to pick a first aid kit? Like, is it 
basically doesn't correlate the more expensive, the more comprehensive it is. And that's what you can go with. So advice on how to pick a first aid kit is that is the number one question we get at Maritime Medical Guides. Everyone wants to know what to put in their kit or which kit to buy. And I can appreciate that. You know, there's a lot of equipment, especially once you start bumping up into those higher price points, as you mentioned, 300, 700,000. And, you know, what's appropriate for what type of trip? The best kit is the one that you know what's in it and you know how to use the, the pieces that are within that kit. You know what you don't know how to use. And you also know what's not in the kit. So you understand the kit's limits. You understand your own personal limits or the limits of the knowledge capacity of your crew. And it's all been inventoried. Each piece is, you know, understood essentially. So that, you know, some of the questions I first ask are, what are the capabilities of the crew? How long is the trip? How big is the crew? How long do you expect to spend away from help? And then what is, you know, your general trip itinerary? If there's any known hazards or if there's any common medical problems that you might associate with it. And some of that data is available uh, with the Wilderness Medical Society on a site called uh, wemjournal.org, W-E-M, Wilderness Emergency Medical Journal.org, where, again, they've looked at certain sports and sports styles and determined what some of the risk behaviors are. So, like, for me, I did a kayak trip up the Inside Passage up to Alaska, and this sort of long-distance ocean kayaking I had a little sail on the boat too. So it was a sail kayaking trip. There's information out there that shows that skin breakdown, blisters were both really common, um, not just on your hands, but on your buttocks and your legs from sitting in, you know, a really wet environment for a long period of time. And there are some special soaps that you can use and bring with you to used to clean your body and hopefully prevent some of these things. So the more expensive the kit is, generally speaking, the more comprehensive it is. That being said, the more money you spend, the more specialty items you're going to get that are going to require special skills to use. Exactly. So it goes back to this knowledge is key kind of idea. You need to yeah. know what's in the kit and you need to know your own skills. So it's almost you scale up that first aid kit as your skills grow with the more, you know, say certifications you take or and more knowledge you yourself have about the uh, situation and then um, first aid in general. So that is actually very helpful because, of course, my mind meant to like well, you buy the most expensive thing you have. But obviously, that doesn't make sense if I have no idea what half the, the pieces are for. So thank you. That was a very good tip. Yeah. You know, I, for, it doesn't hurt to, to bring equipment that you're not necessarily familiar with. Uh, again, it's just something that you would, you would have as a resource for other people to either help you use it or for other people to use that are familiar with how to use it. The one uh, real tip to avoid is to just constantly add more. That's what a lot of people do with boats. Since you don't have to personally carry it, they just tend to get more kits and more bandages. And suddenly you had a kit, but you used some of the stuff. And now you just added another Ziploc bag to it full of other stuff. And these kits 
tend to grow in size over time. And what you'll find is more than half um, or sometimes all of the materials inside that kit are really, really expired. So I think it also helps to inventory your kit, clean it out occasionally, and make sure that you have fresh materials in there. We talked about, you know, knowing your limits and knowing your capabilities as somebody who needs to give first aid to someone. So let's dive into the courses that you offer, specifically, of course, the maritime medicine courses. So as I understand it, you offer sort of the basic and advanced first aid and CPR, as well as the wilderness first responder courses. So I'm curious, how are the first aid courses, the basic level and the, the advanced ones different from say the courses that, you know, anyone can book in a, any city, you know, I could book one here in Ottawa right. uh, and have a, like a land-based course. So all training is good. And what we've done with, with our groups is we've taken these standardized curriculums and added the context and the topics that are important to sailors. So, you know, if you do CPR in a classroom downtown, you have to kind of think about what that would be like on a small boat versus in our classes, we go on small boats and we practice doing CPR and you can quickly tell how incredibly challenging it is, um, both from a space component, from a boat motion component and from a resource component in classroom. It's really easy to have two, three, four rescuers hovering around a patient, sw swapping out rolls of compressions and, you know, managing the airway. But in reality, if you're, you know, on a, on a small boat, those roles are going to have to be condensed and compressed into maybe just a couple of rescuers. Sometimes you're alone. Sometimes, you know, you, you're understaffed. And it's important to feel what that would feel like. I, I definitely think it's important to feel the context, uh, which is what we do in in our programs. So adding adding to that, we you know talk more specifically about drowning, about cold water immersion, and about maritime specific topics uh, from dive mercies, marine bites and stings, seasickness, and and so forth, and 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 really try to drive everything into the context of the boat being the hardest place to apply first aid. And I think it's a lot easier to actually extrapolate the training from a boat and apply it to the rest of the world than it is to take a course that's made for the world and apply it to a boat, if that makes sense. So do you do the, the basic and the advanced uh, first aid on a boat as well? Or in a boat marine environment? Yeah, for uh, I'd say probably 70 to... 90% of the classes have will have skills components on boats. And that's kind of what our ideal site partnerships look like, where we have um, either classroom space or a large boat that serves as a classroom. And then we can host skills on a either adjacent boat or on the boat itself. Well, I know many people who are listening right now who might not be from the West Coast area or from North America at all. And uh, I saw on your website, uh, maritimemedicalguides.org, that you have offered uh, online courses as well to sort of help prepare for the in-person classes. So what's the online course like and, and what kind of theory does one learn at that and, and who is it for exactly? Okay, so the online course is something that we developed in-house uh, between myself and actually another uh, skipper. 
And we were tasked during the pandemic to put a lot of our curriculum online because we had no other way of bringing it to the people. And it was a hilarious experiment where I sat in front of the camera that I set up myself and lectured for about a week and watched some of these videos and deleted 30 hours of content. I was terribly embarrassed. I (laughs) did not like what I was seeing and essentially sulked in self-pity for for a few months as I realized that this was not the direction that we needed to go. Ultimately, the pandemic proved to be lengthier than anyone ever thought. And turned out we had to do the curriculum. And (laughs) at first, it was just me and then uh, my coworker and uh, also a licensed captain, Annie. She she took on the role of editing. And, And what we've done with the online program is created about 50 to 70 different online videos that are about five to seven minutes long that cover different topics within emergency medicine. So we have CPR, patient assessment, most of the trauma topics, medical topics, and environmental and maritime specific topics. So each lab and lecture will have a case study. It's either a case study we found or some YouTube video that we've sourced that shows the accident where you can see, you know, someone being accidentally jibed and upon and getting knocked unconscious. And it goes and talking into what the uh, signs and symptoms would be and treatment would be for that. It's been a, a, a really neat project for us. It's helped with our in-person classes to make them more skills and scenario based. So we could eliminate a lot of the lecture that we do. And um, as a standalone resource, it works really well to give people kind of a broad range of knowledge on the topics that are in, you know, these these larger medical problems. I'd say in total, it's probably five to six hours. Um, There's a ton of additional resources that are entered into the platform where you could spend hours and hours and hours upon that. We do uh, quarterly updates and we kind of just get you plugged into our system as a resource. So people, you know, that take it, uh, reach out and we meet up with them and, and talk to them and field questions about, um, you know, their, their trip plans and preparation strategies and questions they have with the curriculum. So it's been a lot of fun really, uh, for, for us. And it sounds like for the students too. Yeah, it sounds like a really cool project and like a really good resource or like um, a refresher or maybe even an introduction for somebody who's uh, about to do a course or and just wants to get a little bit of an understanding of uh, what they're getting themselves into. So, uh, yeah, that looks super interesting. And another thing that sounds really cool and fascinating is the Wilderness First Responder course, which is obviously a much more advanced option. But it's a kind of, if I've understood it correctly, it's a five-day sort of a camping and sailing trip, but really it's a training course for first aid and being a, a wilderness first responder. So what are some of the things that are covered in this course that are not in the in the basic and advanced first aid and CPR course? Yeah, good question. Uh, the wilderness first responder is a great course. There's a number of listings all across North America that have wilderness first responders. And it's typically a 72-ish hour curriculum 
our program is six days now, and we take a flotilla of boats out into the San Juan Islands. Students camp on the islands, so we're you know, hiking around the islands. We're going between islands on boats and practicing scenarios that are both you know, on island, that are wilderness-based, and um, that are maritime-focused on, on the boats. It's an exceptional experience. I, I just look forward to all of these. I think it's maybe the best time I can possibly have as a teacher. But um, some of the things that you learn on the wilderness side of the house is how to build uh, litters, how to build shelters, how to administer antibiotics, uh, how to give certain types of medications, when not to give certain types of medications like nitroglycerin, for example. And uh, you learn some of the, the tactics that you wouldn't necessarily learn in a shorter course. Like one thing would be like a shoulder dislocation. You don't have enough time to cover all ways of reducing or putting a shoulder dislocation back in a socket in a shorter class. And when you would want to do that, when you would definitely not want to do that. But in a wilderness first responder, you have more time for, for topics that are advanced or, um, you know, how to put a shoulder back into place, how to assess and treat grossly angulated fracture or an open fracture and what that would look like over a prolonged amount of time, whether to reduce the bone ends back under the skin and, and administer antibiotics. So there's actually quite a bit of topics that you get on top of a typical program. On top of that, you get to practice dozens more scenarios. And the practice in, in pulling probably you know thousands of, of students over the years, that's what people take the most out of these types of programs is the practice, the hands-on skills practice. And so, you know, your first splint that you apply is usually not very good. And hopefully you have a chance to apply another one and um, another one in, you know, potentially a fourth and a fifth before you really, really get a sense of how to build these things perfectly how to build them when you don't have the proper splinting materials and um, what some of the indications for would be, you know, in evacuating a, a grossly angulated fracture. So, you know, a lot of these skills take time and, and that's what a wilderness first responder really helps provide. I think um, in addition to some, uh, some extracurriculum. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. And I can absolutely see how, you know, having more time to repeat some of those processes will be so beneficial. So so what is the prerequisite for this course? Is it uh, is the advanced uh, first aid and CPR enough as a prerequisite? So how do you how do you uh, get into this uh, adventure course? <laughs> no, you can just sign up. Uh, there, there's no prerequisites for a wilderness first responder. It's actually the first medical course I took was out in uh, Montana and my freshman year of college, it was a wilderness first responder and it, it really inspired me. Um, our instructors were amazing. And one of the things that you, you get to feel is that sort of adrenaline spike when you come on to a simulated emergency and you have to feel that a number of times in order to understand what it's doing to you. Really, there's a, a couple of good studies that that look into the psychology of emergency response. And, you know, to be perfectly honest with you, it is, it can be scary to have an emergency and it can be really 
um, quite intimidating to be a rescuer. And that's at the highest level of medicine too. You know, responding to accidents on a helicopter and coming across these uh, really intense scenes, I mean, it can take your breath away. And one of the things the psychology of responding to emergencies would suggest is that most people, if left untrained, will create a tunnel vision and will have a hard time taking a holistic look at the situation. And I can totally empathize with that. Uh, when I was young, I had just gotten my EMT. I was driving across the uh, U.S. and I came across a single vehicle rollover with a couple people ejected out of the car. This is in the middle of the day. No one was there. There was a uh, an elderly lady on the side of the road flagging me down. And I had just gotten my EMT. I'm looking at this car accident and I couldn't think of the first thing to do. Uh, fortunately, I had the sense to pull over, grab a pair of gloves and a pocket mask out of my glove box. But I, I, you know, I just sort of bashfully walked towards the first victim that I could see. And as I did that, I almost got hit by a car. Um, I realized real quickly that I was walking across an interstate without even looking to see if traffic was coming. And, you know, that is what happens to people is they get this very narrow field of vision as a scene can be intense. Going through these training programs and having that spike of adrenaline and being thrust into these situations that you're uncomfortable with gives you the opportunity to make the mistake, to understand how your body's going to react and to develop strategies to overcome that. As a spoiler alert, one of the main uh, recommendations is actually to just pause and take a number of deep breaths and just breathe. And they say, don't just do something, stand there, <laughs> but stand there and breathe and try to calm yourself down. And you can recite a mantra if that's helpful, like, you know, make sure the scene is safe or control the boat and get control of yourself, get control of the boat before you access the patient. And that's what training does. It allows you to practice that and, and really fine tune your own best efforts. Yeah, that's perfect. And that's exactly what the training is about and uh, kind of talks to the value of it because I've done many first aid training, like the, the basic first aid and CPR. And, you know, it expires every few years or every couple of years. And now I'm uh, about to go do another one. I'm like, yeah, I can't think that I remember that much because I never had to think about any of the things that I learned outside that little classroom course. So I can imagine having those, you know, experiences and training experiences and, and situations in a real life environment, like outdoors, on a boat, not in, a, in an office or a classroom that would uh, help with the learning quite a bit, I think. Yeah, you know, retention rate is another thing that's really, um, really well studied. And the retention rates for emergency medical skills is quite low. It's anywhere from three to six months, you start to see skills degradation quickly. And most people can empathize with that because they've also felt that within themselves. You don't see people registering for first aid classes every three to six months. Hopefully they don't have to use it, but it's one of those topics that people put in the far back of their mind 
you know, almost immediately. It's not a that they're, they're they're typically not pleasant topics, and you don't want to live in in fear of of bad things happening all the time. Uh, but one way of mitigating the uh, retention rate or the dismal retention rate is to do ongoing training, even a little tiny bit, whether that's a case study or uh, a short reminder of a short read or a, a small video. And a little goes a really, really long way in terms of retention. And that's one thing we're trying to do with our online program is to give people little doses of information along the way so that it helps to rekindle and respool those those topics to keep them on the forefront of the mind. Um, and also we're developing um, all of our curriculum into an app that people can take with them to essentially utilize these skills offline too. Oh, that's fantastic. I look forward to seeing that. That's a great initiative for sure. Well, John, thank you for sharing all this information today and uh, all the advice. And I will certainly link all the resources and websites and courses that we have talked about today below in, in the description and in the show notes. I really appreciate what you're doing. And thank you for providing some really interesting content on your on your podcast. It's it's a pleasure to be here. And, and thanks so much. What a great chat. I hope you got some good and practical tips out of this one. Check out the website maritimemedicalguides.org to learn more about the courses. I think they sound fantastic. And I would actually love to hear if there is anyone else out there who would be interested in doing some of these courses, and maybe we should do one together. So if that's something that might interest you, let me know. You can find me on Instagram or Facebook as Liverboard Sailing Podcast. Or you can shoot me an email at hello at liverboardsailingpodcast.com. Next time, it is time for yet another story. So stay tuned and I'll see you next week. As usual, thank you for listening. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.